Uh, yes. Want me to closer to the slides, or, or that doesn't make a difference for you, does it? No. Okay, this is, I, I need to be able to see the slides here and some other things, so this will work. I can slide, I can put the slides on here. Oh, yeah, then I can see, yeah. Mm Continuing at the 
an amateur musician after the summer of 1865 when he remembers playing his very own horn one last time for the Titans baseball. Even his wife lived in Rapid City on the street where he never took his eyes. He's retired from Mohawk's college career as newspaper reporter, military public affairs officer, with the kind of administrator of the Square Valley. And we are so lucky to have him here in Sturgis with us. Thank you very much. Uh, it's always good to come home. Uh, and in the last several months, I haven't been home often enough. And I think all of us uh, suffer from that. Yeah, but the times that we're living in now and all of the confusion and the um, disembobulation, no, I'm not saying that right, but anyway, it, it's been a mess. And, uh, we all have to hope that it goes away and we can return to some semblance of normal. Well, musical memories. Don't really uh, talk to me. Gosh, it's been more than a year ago, a year ago now, for uh, what are you going to do next, Dave? And so I had thought about this topic a little bit prior to her asking me the question and felt that there's got to be a story uh, with music in Sturgis, one way or another. Um, and I started to scratch at it just a tiny little bit from my own recollections and family members and friends and quickly realized that kind of like Sheriff Johnny Egger's stories, you can read at least two books. I'm gonna condense things into two programs. Today is the first movement uh, how we learn to sing and play. And then as my research continues, and hopefully I can enlist the assistance of some other Sturgis people, we'll put on the second movement uh, about performance itself. So today I'm gonna concentrate mostly on sort of the structure, the academic structure and the technical and the learning structure of how music has come into our community. Uh, and then some months from now, we can come back and listen more to some of the performances uh, of musicians from Sturgis or Sturgis people who've gone on to perform elsewhere um, as well. So uh, I'm going to try to paint that really big, broad brush uh, in the second chapter of all this, or the second movement of all this. In my research uh, yesterday, I had an opportunity to talk to my high school classmate, Bill Grains. Bill and Bob brothers are the fourth generation, I believe, of the Grands family to be uh, either living in Sturgis or connected deeply with the root, uh, the roots of this community. And Bill's a musician, continues on in, as a musician. He doesn't have any life regrets about uh, not singing and playing because he does both of those, both of those things from his home in Kennewick, Washington, where he's lived uh, now mostly in retirement uh, for several decades. But Bill reminded me that um, it was the heavenly gates, St. Peter on duty, first thing in the morning, the applicants are lining up to come into heaven, and there's three people at the head of the line. 
And one of them comes up and uh, St. Peter asks the question, uh, how much money did you make? And what was your profession when you were on earth? And this, this junior angel, uh, no halo yet, of course, because that has to be confirmed later. But uh, this rookie angel stands up and says, well, the last year I worked, I made $500,000 in my life practice. And St. Peter says, impressive. And the second angel, the applicant comes up and same two questions. Uh, my 1044 to the IRS showed last year, I made $350,000. I've been in commercial real estate virtually all the time. And uh, St. Peter says, hmm, significant sum. And so the third person comes up and it's, it's that angel's turn. I earned $8,000 last year. And with a knowing smile and, and what have you, St. Peter just looks and says, what instrument did you play? So I don't know how many artists there are in our um, diminished audience this morning or how many people are listening in on Zoom, but for anyone who's tried to make a living as a musician um, or even uh, make money as a, as a musician, uh, it doesn't pay well except for the, the exceptional top, top level of performers. Uh, and so eight grand is probably about right for an applicant to them. They have it these days. Yeah, next slide, please. So where do we start? I couldn't find a precise starting point for music and strings. I'm gonna guess it was here um, with the first people, first uh, non-native people that came in and created the community as we know it today. Uh, and certainly the natives that were here before us uh, would have been drumming and singing and dancing. So the, the, the rhythm of music, the magic of music and all of that has been a part of this community forever. Really. This is one of the earliest photographs that show uh, a musical organization in Stratus, and this is from 1888. And you probably cannot read the, the text of the, of the people in the, in the group, but in the back row from the left, George Beeson, who lived to be a bazillion years old and was a businessman, a volunteer fireman, an important guy in Stratus. Um, and then uh, next to him is a person who is unidentified. And the tallest person in the group there is uh, William Henry Grams, the, uh, the, the, the anchorman of the Grams family coming to the Sturgis area. And he would be the great grandfather of Bob Grams and older brother Bill uh, today. And then there's Charles Moody, who was the band leader. George Hatterbrink, two unidentified men. Then seated, there's Mike Doden, Henry Fruth, William Waldman, then three identified people, and finally Albert Anderson. And just a word about, you know, these were men, obviously. They played brass instruments for the most part, which was an easy, economical way to bring music into a community. The instruments were pretty durable. Uh, relatively easy to learn how to play at least fundamental things. And so um, that was often a part of a brass band for 
uh, any community out here on the prairie, probably anywhere in the United States. Uh, influences from Germany, other countries in Western Europe that brought the music with them as, as immigrants or the sons and, and grandsons of American immigrants to be in a brass band. All of the Hills communities had brass bands of one kind or another, almost from their founding. Uh, great competition among the communities of whose band was better. Um, competition about the uniforms. There's a goofy picture that I don't have on my slideshow today of some 19th century Sturgis guys um, dressed up in their band uniforms, and they all look silly by today's standards. With these goofy uniforms with braid and fake military medals and uh, uh, this and that and the other. But there was part of the show, uh, and that's just how it works. So, next slide, please. And just a, a final little reminder about uh, William Henry Grahams. Um, he was also a violin maker. And I think a lot of folks, if you paid attention to Sturgis history from the old, old days and the very recent times, um, he was the violin maker who uh, made the violin that uh, one violin was given as a gift to President Coolidge when he was here in the Black Hills in 1927. And uh, Bill Grahams tells me that, that the family believes that that violin, that instrument, is still somewhere in the Smithsonian's archives. Uh, it's not on display, but uh, they, they still have, they own the instrument and they have, it hasn't been moved to Vermilion where it probably should be. But uh, anyway, that's, uh, that was one violin. And then he also fashioned the violin in tribute to his grandson who was uh, killed in a sling riding accident off the uh, north side of Weber Hill. And uh, uh, Senator and his brother uh, were slave riding, and um, Bill's brother, uh, they were very close in age, um, crashed into a cedar fence post and was killed. And, um, and Grandpa took that, the wood from that post and built a violin for it. And that instrument is in the Graham's family. And, and the youngest Bill Graham's, my high school classmate, built a display case for that violin. It's at the courthouse, I believe. And along with the story of what that instrument meant to the Graham's family. Here's just another photograph of a high school orchestra from 1913. Their uh, orchestras were often woven into school music early on. And I don't think that today, if you take, study violin in the Sturgis school system, no. uh, that takes kind of another level of of uh, school district budgets and uh, available faculty and, and the like that bring stringed instruments in at the high school level. So, um, but here they were in 1913, uh, fiddling away, as it were, and uh, with other manners of brass instruments as well. So, next slide. Now, here's the school band from somewhere in the years 1927 to 1936. Uh, I just point this out for a couple of reasons. One, to illustrate that it's still just boys. And I don't know, 
Girls got introduced into instrumental music somewhere along the way, but it, in the early or the late 20s, early 30s, it was still more, it was just an all male uh, organization, heavy on brass instruments. And the fellow, the gentleman in the middle, the adult in the middle with the military hat on, is an active duty member of the cavalry unit at Fort Meade. And he is a technical sergeant, Quinto Ferretti. And uh, he, was a military musician, uh, born and educated in Italy, as were many late 19th century and early 20th century military musicians. And I kind of hunch that in those days, that was a path to citizenship for them, just like it is today for immigrants who join uh, military forces and can kind of get moved to the head of the line in some instances uh, with their uh, goal of achieving US citizenship. So this fellow comes along He's the senior NCO in the band. And I haven't been able to find yet a news story to find out if he was a volunteer faculty member at Sturgis High School or if he was somehow paid for his uh, working. But he got time off from his military job to come two miles into town and lead the high school band. Uh, maybe it wasn't every day and maybe you know, subject to his availability but nonetheless, he was the conductor for all those years. And when I first saw this picture, I thought, oh, this was just a one-off deal. This is because his son, one of his, he had four children. One of his sons is a clarinet player. I don't know which lad his son is. And I'm thinking, oh, it's just a generous dad who's helping out. And somebody took this picture. And that was it. But he was, he's in the yearbook. He's listed in the faculty. Uh, and in news stories and, and the like. So it wasn't just a one-shot deal of uh, somebody helping out the school. From Fort Meade in, in 36 and 37, he was transferred to Hawaii. And I don't think that he was still on active duty during World War II. By then he would have been old enough to he would have retired. Uh, his family, a big chunk of the family settled in Missouri. And he went there into retirement and died there. He was, a, he was in his mid-70s when he passed away. So that's uh, Ferretti and his story of how he's woven in to the music of Sturgis. And a little bit later on, I'll talk a bit more about Fort Meade and the role that Fort Meade played. So next slide, please. This is a direct quote that made all of us uh, uh, double entendre boys in high school. But uh, Kent Froru uh, one day was exasperated with us and uh, in the band room in the, in the Williams building upstairs there where we all uh, learned to play. And uh, he cracked the baton on the, on the podium one more time. And, uh, and it was just, blow, don't suck. So he blew. And um, uh, but anyway, this is just a representation of the many band directors that have been part of the high school music in Sturgis. The fellow on the far left, the kind of stern looking gent in the, the, the bow military uniform is Arlie Richardson. And he was here from 1936 to 39. And uh, when the high school band had gained some substance to it, they had uniforms, uh, full of instrumentation, 
and music would have been an important part of school life. This gent is credited with being the first high school band director in the Black Hills, at least, and maybe all of the state or the region, with using sound motion picture technology to film the band in practice so that then he could show the kids that like a training film. Uh, think of that analogy from football or sports. Um, to show the kids that where they were doing well and where they were making mistakes. And it was a big deal. There were new stories about it, and uh, he would have been a pace setter. And I've got, I want to be in the school board meeting when they're signing off on the bills and this guy comes in and he needs $200 or whatever, to, probably to rent the equipment or to pay a cinematographer to come with not only just a, a movie camera, but the sound equipment also to put the two things together. Uh, that would have been a big deal in the 1930s, uh, just at the end of the Depression and the like for Herkimold Sturgis. The next uh, older jet uh, on the top row is Burns Edson Taft. And that's a name that just doesn't roll off. But he was an interesting guy, a South Dakota East River guy, college educated in South Dakota, uh, came after Richardson left and uh, took over the music program, originally the band program in, uh, in Sturgis. Had an interesting career. He bounced around between Sturgis, Newell, Vail, uh, then he went out of state for a couple of years. Along the way, he became a ordained congregational minister. And then he would step, he would be a clergyman for a while, then he'd be a band director for a while. And so uh, uh, sticking with it and probably evidence of what it took for a clergyman teacher in the 1930s uh, to put food on the table. Uh, you, you had to scratch around and find wages wherever you could. Um, Ken Froerick, my band director in high school, um, is the fellow with the whiskers and uh, neat guy. Uh, when he came here, and I'll talk about his predecessor in just a moment, but when, when he came uh, to Sturgis, uh, we band kids were excited because uh, it was a big change uh, in style, if nothing else, in the band room. Uh, he was a great deal younger. He was a full generation younger than Francis Benson, uh, a red hot ribbon trombone player. Um, he smoked cigarettes in the band room. We could always tell when he was a little nervous before a football game or a concert or something like that, because the band room would be kind of smoky. And he later quit. But uh, anyway, uh, Mr. Froerich lived into his 90s. He passed away last year. Um, and he, he left Sturgis and went to uh, St. Cloud, Minnesota, and was on the university faculty there for another 30 plus years. And uh, I stopped in to see him one day when I was in that part of Minnesota. We had a nice hour long visit and, and all of that. He's still every bit of the really dedicated, dedicated educator uh, and a very talented musician. Rorick was followed by Leo Getzko, who's still here. I think he lives in Rapid City now, but uh, 
uh, still very much with us and recovering from COVID. I talked to him on the phone about a week ago. And uh, he, uh, and he had a, a few tales to tell that'll be more pertinent to the performance part of this program, uh, talking about some of his outstanding, a handful or so really, really talented musicians that he remembered uh, during his years in the manner of instructors. And a de dedicated educator, uh, a man in his 90s, uh, who I think if he would have felt a little bit better, and, and he, I'm a stranger to him, you know, I just called him on the phone and, and all of that. Uh, I think over a, a cup of coffee or a beer or whatever would have a little more to say about just the day-to-day, -day, I don't want to use the word grind, but the day-to-day -day duty of being a teacher in a public school system and teaching band, teaching music, uh, and what that you know, classroom management and all of the other things that went along with that and when you're a band director, the extra, the extra energy that you have to have to work at night and, and for every concert and the extra rehearsals and travel with your kids and all of that, so not an easy job. And I, I don't say that to diminish someone who teaches literature in the high school, but there is a difference. And it takes a special dedicated person to be a, a public school music educator uh, the young man in the 70s vintage glasses there, that's Don Downs, um, taught in Sturgis for a few years, and I, I just, I used his picture as an example of someone who's moved, moves on and still stays a music educator. Uh, he went to Rapid City and had finished out a retirement length career as the director of bands at Stevens High School. And then Dave Martinson, uh, many of you will recognize still here in Sturgis, part of the city council long-tenured member of the Sturgis High School faculty, uh, saxophone player, jazz musician, uh, certainly left an imprint uh, on the community in the training and, and of the dedication of what he did for music in the community. And then Gary Nelson is the fellow on the right. And Gary, and I don't know Mr. Nelson, but he holds the record for being the longest tenured music teacher in the Sturgis school system, and, and principally as the middle school music teacher. And uh, uh, I'm guessing, well, all of these gentlemen, but this guy earned his pay. And then some, you know, few junior high age kids. I was a Boy Scout leader for a long time, and I can remember how challenging it was to get largely junior high age boys to not kill themselves and stay focused on past and have fun along the way. And so uh, that's just a sample of the high school music educators that were part of Sturgis. Um, and kind of where they came from, obviously all college educated, uh, many of them with advanced degrees uh, and the like, and, and truly dedicated. <coughs> Next slide, please. And then school choir. Uh, Sorry, on the top row on the left is Mildred uh, Howie. She was on the faculty in 1912. Then a woman with the, the horn rim glasses. I could only find her name as Mrs. Spain. And, in, and she was here in the late 20s. And of course, in that era, women had no first name. They had their husband's first name. Um, 
or they would carry the verb of being miss forever. Um, and so this is Spain, is acquired teacher. And then we're going to jump through, a, a, I'm jumping a, a time window here, but come up on the next slide. Stan Wright is the, the older smiling gentleman there in the middle in the color picture. Mr. Wright came to Sturgis High School my senior year. That would have been 1964-65. He replaced Chuck B. An impossible job, but he did it. He was on the faculty for one year. And uh, black and white, salt and pepper, you think of uh, ebony and ivory, you think of the opposites in your head. Um, that was Mr. Wright and Mr. B, uh, and how they were different in their style and their approach to things. And Stanley Wright, he should have been paid double for working in the high school that very difficult, very challenging year. We kids gave him fits all along the way. Um, we missed Mr. Thielen and his uh, um, irreverence and style, showmanship. And Mr. Wright, who was an excellent musician, um, was all about the skill of singing. And Mr. Thielen was a lot more about the, making the audience uh, laugh and smile and all of that. And so uh, they were just different gentlemen. One, uh, one war story from, it would have been in the spring of the year. Um, and the choir room in the, in the high school then was on the west side of the um, school. Got beastly hot in the afternoon, but we had, we had a choir was scheduled the hour right before lunch. And, um, and I don't remember what the circumstance was, but Mr. Wright had to leave the choir room for a moment to talk to a faculty member. Uh, I can't remember what the circumstance was. But the boys who were seated up in the back of the, the very back row of the choir, the baritones, uh, were right next to the windows. And those windows could be open. And this was in the spring, and so the window was open. Uh, let in fresh air and all of that, and uh, I'll just reveal his name because he's not here to defend himself. But Bill Manier, whose dad was the manager of the dime store downtown, the Lee's uh, Variety Store. Bill Manier, who was a really good singer, uh, as were all the Manier kids. Um, Bill is uh, back there, and, and Mr. Wright leaves the room, the door shut behind him, and the minute that happened, like, you know, classroom discipline and whatever else just goes, it's chaos. And all of a sudden, Bill says, I need a cigarette. And so they pull up the curtains, and he, and I don't know who else, uh, but it's Bill, uh, they get out their pack, and they light up, and they're blowing smoke out the window of the, of the bedroom, and Mr. Wright comes back in, and there's bedlam in the, in the room because we're all snickering and, and uh, whatever at the audacity of Bill and, uh, and his accomplices. And, you know, and Stan Wright comes in, well, what's going on? Okay, come on back, you know, and taps his baton. And, uh, you know, we've got to get back to business here. And by then he's, 
what's going on in here? And he can smell the tobacco smoke. So he storms up the risers to the, and, and the boys are all just, you know, they're angels applying for heaven, you know, no, not me, not me, not me. And I'm sure the butt is still burning outside of the window where they threw it into the grass. But uh, that was Stan Ernie's pain, that's for sure. And a tough guy, he came, he's married to a, a Phil Sparker from Sturgis. They came back here in 1997 for the 100th anniversary all school reunion, and he led the combined choir. He's still very much a music educator and uh, the like. So he exited from town, but he didn't get run out of town. And I admire the man for having the courage to come back and, and one more time face students. And I don't know that, I don't think Bill here attended that reunion. Anyway, Dave Blagan is next, son of a Lutheran minister, East River kid, uh, didn't stay in Sturgis all that many years, went to Worthington, Minnesota, and, and finished out a long career as a music educator. Uh, Lyle Merriman is the fellow with the necktie on the bottom left. Um, and I don't know him or know anything about him, uh, except he's from Howard, South Dakota. He was Weary Willie at South Dakota State when he was an undergraduate. And uh, he was the director of the Statesman, which was the all-male course from South Dakota State. And that was a, they were an impressive singing group in the 60s and 70s, and I presume still are. Uh, but for him to be chosen as a student, to be the lead, I think he's a graduate student, yeah, to be the leader of that group, Anthony, he had to have some chops in order to be able to do that. Next is Judy White, who had a, a long and storied uh, tenure here as a teacher and a successful music educator. She, her husband got reassigned and they left in the middle of the school year. And that might have, must have been a gasp in the audience when she announced that it was, that they were gonna be leaving. And uh, Bob Stretch Donaldson uh, stepped up, a trombone player, uh, for heaven's sake, stepped up or stepped across, I guess, from his math teaching job and led the school choir for the rest of the school year. So uh, you have to be flexible uh, when you're on the faculty at Sturgis High School. And I, I think there's more than one. There always have been teachers in the Sturgis school system who are part Swiss Army knife. And they, they do whatever needs to be done. And uh, so that's an example. The next fellow there uh, is Dave Marcus, if I'm saying his name right, was a, both a choir and band teacher because in the 80s and 90s here in Sturgis, the school district often, there was quite a bit of turmoil in the music faculty. And uh, occasionally a teacher would be hired and have to do double duty to be both the band and choir director. Uh, in the early 70s, I can remember coming to a high school basketball tournament here when I was still a reporter at the Sturgis Tribune. And Grunwald Auditorium was hosting all of the B schools of Buffalo and Bison and Faith and towns like that had come to Sturgis to play their, their basketball tournament. And I don't remember the town anymore, but the basketball coach was also the band director. And so he put down his towel and he picked up a baton and he led the school's pet band. And then he put the baton down and picked up his towel and over and coached the kids at basketball. So, um, and, and that probably still goes on to some degree or another. 
And then the, the final person uh, that is uh, there is Janine uh, right? Hoffman. And I just, I used her picture just as a representation of a, of a more contemporary faculty member uh, for the choir. Marcus uh, left Sturgis and he was already in his 30s and he joined an uh, Army National Guard band in Mitchell and uh, went on active duty and, and did his preparatory training, came home then and was a, a long, long serving member of the 147th Army Band that's headquartered in Mitchell. And he went on, he continued on as a music educator, but not here at Black Hills. So next slide, please. This is not a photograph of Dean Morton and Lawrence Welk. But that's about how different these two gents were. Chuck Thielen on the left and Francis Benson on the right. Um, both excellent musicians, excellent educators, um, but their style, their approach to things, and what have you, they were polar opposites uh, for lots of reasons. Um, Thielen was an Aberdeen native, went to school at Northern, uh, was in the Marine Corps in Korea, uh, served in combat uh, in Korea, um, came home. Uh, his wife Nancy was a, an accomplished pianist. Right? She was in South Dakota in the early 50s. Um, and Chuck Thielen was a showman. I mean, just no, there's no other, I, I can't describe him with any other word than that. Uh, his three, he and Nancy had had three children. Uh, Christy Thielen, who lives in Belfouche, has been involved in the arts community in the Black Hills for all of her life, uh, I think. They have another son who is a now retired law enforcement officer. And then uh, Andy Thielen lives in coastal North Carolina and is the leader, manager, whatever, of a uh, big orchestra there, kind of one of the last big full-up show band orchestras on the East Coast. And if you uh, go to YouTube and just search Andy Thielen Orchestra or Andrew Thielen Orchestra, and they, they his group plays all of the big venues on the East Coast where they need a big 20-piece orchestra and uh, female singers, male singers, a request list that is endless, and Andy Thielen is a drummer like his dad, Chuck, and, uh, and really, really talented musicians. And he would have, young Andy would have learned that the, that the hand of his dad and mom, um, his musical talents. Francis Benson was from the little town of Trent, South Dakota, which is halfway between Flandreau and Del Rapids. Went to school at Augustana, uh, was principally a clarinet player, taught in a couple small schools before he came to Sturgis. And uh, he was hired to restart the high school music program after World War II. Just like the rally took a couple years off for the war, the high school uh, music program just got put in mothballs. Uh, with no faculty member. There still was a student pep band, 
and um, Benny Bell, Benny P Peterson, Peterson Bell was the student leader of the Pet Band. And so, um, but Mr. Benson was this kind of stern, no nonsense technician of playing. And I gave up trying to teach me how to triple tongue the coronet. Um, he had better places to spend his time than for me. And uh, a nice gentleman, uh, dedicated to teaching and all of that, but uh, not a flashy guy. He was, he was Mr. Serious. He was Lawrence Welk, uh, and, and Thela was the Rat Pack. And that's how those two guys were different. So next slide, please. A word about what music does for students, or some words about what music does for students in teaching leadership skills as well as skills as musicians, and how important that becomes as life lessons for these people here. This would have been, this is largely the class of 1966. So Ross Lushbaugh, Bonnie Moschino, Mary Kelly, Claire Wood, and Paul Burgundy. Um, all of them continued on involved in music some way or another uh, into their adult lives. Paul Burkett on the right is a professional musician. He's in his 70s now, still working, lives in Minneapolis, uh, and is largely a, a lute player. He hung up his rock and roll talents uh, probably a, more than a decade or two ago and is largely a classical music uh, person now. He was a Fort Meade kid um, and uh, another influence, I guess, of music in Fort Meade and how that's woven into the Sturgis community. But these students, these 17 and 18 year olds, I chose this picture because uh, I just wanted to address the, the whole notion of a person involved in musical training and in musical performance, particularly as a young person, uh, learns a great deal more than just the notes on the paper or on the sheet music that's in front of you. And those become priceless lessons. Uh, our two kids had the benefit of being in a public school music program back in Virginia where they were largely raised. And to this day, they are in their 40s. And if you get them to reminisce about what it was like to be in the high school music program then uh, very quickly they, they'll highlight a couple of musical things but then they'll talk about the socializing the leadership skills uh, and the other disciplines that they learn from um, being involved in, in a school music program and i've got to trust that that still goes on today with kids that are involved in music there's all kinds of academic study that points to how Students who are take music training uh, do well in school and other subjects. Didn't help me with math, but that was just a shortcoming of my own. Uh, I could do a one and a two, but I could never put together three and four times x over the square root of something else. Uh, I quickly got lost. But musical leadership is uh, just another benefit. Next slide, please. Now, St. Martin's. 
we, we just like we have to talk about Fort Meade, we certainly have to talk about the role that St. Martin's Academy played in music training and in music performance in this community, uh, not only for the, the student body that was enrolled at St. Martin's, but the additional students that uh, were the pupils, particularly of Sister Clement, the lady on the upper left, um, and her, her reputation, her talents, her skills, the influence that she had in the community. My older sister was a pupil of Sister Clement, public school educated, but she demonstrated enough skill and interest in the piano that uh, my mom drug up the money from somewhere. And, and I'm sure that Sister Clement didn't necessarily charge premium prices, but it, it was a, you had to pay for the lesson, of course. And, uh, and my sister today will, will remember um, how intimidating she was, uh, but how much you learn. And, and because of her requirements for practice and excellence and all of that, it becomes one of those double lessons that not only did you learn technical things, uh, but you also learned stuff for your head as well. Uh, and so um, and she, the history is a little fuzzy on, she may, if she wasn't the first woman to lead a high school band in South Dakota, she was among the first three or four uh, women school faculty members who were band leaders in what had previously been an all-male um, expectation or, or requirement. And then she had a colleague, Sister Mary David, who also was a piano teacher, uh, but then went on to become school administrator at St. Martin's. Uh, the two important ladies who gave much to the musical world here so next slide, please. Sturgis has also had a long list of private lesson piano teachers uh, as well. And I've got to trust that that still goes on today. But if you're a youngster here in town and you uh, express an interest in learning to play the piano, why there's someone here that will, will give lessons. Uh, among the earliest that I could find, just in newspaper accounts, there was a woman named Marion Minty Sherman, and she was a piano teacher in the 1930s. There was a woman named Kathleen Creed, who was on the St. Martin's music faculty in the 1930s. And then uh, by the late 1950s, uh, Margaret Means was here in town teaching lessons from 58 to 67. Her three daughters were all accomplished pianists um, and accompanists for the school choir and, and the like. And Mrs. Means was the accompanist for the Lions Club and the Rotary Club here in town. And then the lady who's pictured here is uh, uh, Marvell Brain Means, um, another private lesson piano teacher here in town. And her, uh, I've talked to both her and her son and daughter about what it was like to live in a house where music lessons were taught. And how uh, Chuck Brady remembers that uh, it, uh, it didn't make any difference to him. Uh, he wanted to walk across the living room during the lesson he just did. His sister had a different approach or more polite maybe uh, than at all. But Chuck remembers that his mom was a by the book 
playing what is written, music teacher. And that was her technique, that was her approach to music. And also went on to a long, long tenure here in town of being an accompanist for uh, church groups, uh, civic groups, weddings and funerals, and the like. Uh, other music teachers here, Virginia Hardy, uh, Elaine Owens was an important accompanist. She didn't teach lessons, uh, not formally anyway. Nancy Thielen, who, when the Thielens moved from Sturgis to Rapid City, she moved her piano teaching career to Rapid City and opened up a, a studio there called Hundreds of Kids on Play the Piano. One of the first music teachers in the area to embrace the technology using electronic keyboards and teaching more than one student at a time, uh, things like that from her, her studio. Uh, Margaret Phillips was a Fort Meade mom and she taught piano and organ lessons from home out of the fort. Um, and then in modern times, uh, Roxy Graceful Child was just all things music and all things theater uh, here in the community. Uh, as a relatively young adult uh, teaching here. And then when Dennis's uh, military career took them around the world, uh, she was absent for a period of time. And then when they returned, why she continued on, of course, is an important part of the music scene in the Sturgis community. And uh, next slide, please. Church choirs. Uh, every church had a choir, um, often more than one, uh, a children's choir, an adult choir, small groups, large groups. Uh, that meant an accompanist or, or the organist for that church. Uh, so that was another assignment, another opportunity to perform. Uh, frequently, the church choirs come, would come together for particularly Christmas for the Messiah and what all that would mean to the community for rehearsals and presentations and, and more of the glue, the social and artistic glue of the town that keeps things together. Uh, this was just an available photograph from the uh, Presbyterian Church. Next slide, please. Which leads into Peggy Thompson. Um, and I, can, I pretty much missed Mrs. Thompson as a teacher. We attended the Presbyterian Church, my sister and I did, and everybody, of course, knew who she was. And by the time I was old enough to sort of pay attention and the like, I wasn't involved in the church music much at all anymore. But certainly when uh, Mrs. Thompson was in the room, or Peggy, as I think we all were able to call her, it's just this fireball lady with red curly hair and big 1970s classes and she she walked 100 miles an hour I think everywhere she went in the, in the sanctuary of the church or elsewhere and I talked with her niece Nancy Harlan uh, about her aunt and the influence that she had on 4-H and on the music scene here in Sturgis so an important lady and I'm sure that she wasn't alone there there were other volunteer music leaders in the community that had the similar amounts of talent and energy that they shared with the town. And if you go to the Bear Cemetery and see where she and uh, 
Clayton or Barry only the covering of her her grave is a big slab of granite with a treble clef etched on it. So make no mistake about it. She's still, and she's in heaven, and she's, you know, those applicants that are, you know, divulging what their uh, uh, occupations and salaries were. Mrs. Thompson is there. It's, we need three second tenors, two basses, an alto, you know, for today's choir, you know, get over here. You know, and, and she would have them whipped in shape, uh, able to perform by Sunday. Just that kind of a lady. She was a native of Indiana, by the way, and uh, her parents died and she came out here, or her, her mother died, and her dad remarried and came out here in the Black Hills. And so she uh, spent her teenage growing up years in the Piedmont area, went to high school in Rapid City, in college, Mary Clayton, and I've already told you a little bit about what, what she has done. So, next slide, please. My mom found the money in the bottom of her purse somewhere or another to buy for me my cornet student model horn that I used when I was starting to play in Mr. Benson's band as a fifth grader. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the, the music retail business here. Where did you get your horn? You know, where did you get a piano? Uh, where did you have it repaired? Where did you buy valve oil, sheet music, um, the other things that it takes to participate in music? Well, the earliest recollection I could find was Ron Moss. And the Moss Music Store was on Main Street across away from pennies. I don't remember which street address it was, but it was a relatively small retail space. And he had his store there. He's a native of Wisconsin, played in uh, military bands as a young adult, um, and hung around in the Wisconsin area. He's from Watertown, Wisconsin. Uh, played with uh, no less than Herb Schreiner. And you have to be of a certain age to remember who Herb Schreiner was. Um, I talked to people from Indiana, they don't know who Herb Schreiner was, but he was, a, he was an important musician in his uh, early 50s TV star. So, so Ron Moss played trumpet. And Ron Moss is still alive, he's in his 90s, lives in Juneau, Alaska, and is an important part of the music scene there. He and his wife donated in 2014, I think it is, they donated $100,000 to the arts and a soup kitchen in Juno, and he was a founding member of the Juno Symphony, um, lifelong player in a dance band, uh, and an entrepreneur uh, as well. Interesting character. Um, left here in something, I don't want to say cloud of dust, but he, he was in business on Main Street, and then he was gone. So uh, the story of how and why he left town is lost to history. And I did an exchange of a letter with Mr. Moss and he filled me in a little bit about his career. And of course the bulk of it has been in, in Juneau, Alaska where he really took root because they, they went from Sturgis directly to Juneau. And he's been there since. Then Cord Wanamaker was a North Dakota who came to town and opened a music store on First Street 
um, where the Gallery 21 Art Gallery was, a Dean McMinney's place was. Uh, he had a music store that came back part of that building for a number of years. And he, I don't know that he was a partner, but he was somehow involved with uh, the Yarborough operation at Tilford and the Square Dance Parlor, or Ballard and Square Dance Barn. That was at Tilford for many, many years. In fact, that building was just torn down within the last couple of years. Um, and uh, was involved in the world of square dancing. Square dancing in the 50s and 60s was a big deal here in the, in the Black Hills in this region. The Rhapsody Journal had a weekly column that followed square dance activities and the participants. So there was a lot of crinoline and uh, stringy bow tie or uh, Western ties for the square dancers of, of that year. Then Leo Ketzko had a retail music store in downtown, in downtown Sturgis for a few years. And I just mentioned, and in, in the performance um, piece that I'll talk about here months from now, I'm going to talk more about Ken Buchanan. Ken Buchanan is a Sturgis kid, uh, grew up with his brothers and sisters in the Crooked House that's on the road to Whitehead. Yeah, anybody remember the Crooked House? That's what we all call it. It's an optical illusion. If you drive on the service road from Sturgis to Whitewood and you round the corner, it's about halfway in between. There's a residential home there. And when you, if you're in a car and you drive by, you look at that house and it's like a cosmos. It's like the house is lean. It's not. But uh, it was, we always knew, oh, the Buchanan's didn't live in the Crooked House. Um, Ken is an accomplished musician. Uh, partially retired now, um, and his wife is a, a PhD level a bassoon player, a college professor, performing musician. They live in Las Vegas, from the Las Vegas area. Um, Ken grew up in Sturgis, played for Mr. Getzko, who switched him from being a cornet player to being a euphonium player, and that really clicked with Ken. And Went to school at Black Hills, got a degree in performance, stayed in Spearfish as an entrepreneur in the music industry for 10 years. And then was um, encouraged, I guess, and uh, successful in auditioning to be in, uh, to go on active duty. And uh, he's 33 years old, had to have an age waiver, uh, went on active duty, and served in an Air Force band, or several Air Force bands, uh, through a, a full retirement career, and just has had an interesting life as a performer, traveling around the world and around the United States, uh, performing and teaching, and, and certainly still fondly connected to his musical roots here in Sturgis and in, in Spearfish at the college. So, excellent piece. Okay, I'm coming up on one hour here. Music for me. And I'll try to pick up the tempo a little bit. There have been musical bands at Fort Meade when the active duty army was there from the very beginning. Uh, music and the army, music and the military, just they go together. They are welded together for a variety of reasons. 
some very historic and some very contemporary. But this is a picture of the fourth cavalry band, 1927, uh, in front of their barracks. And it's a fuzzy picture, but just to the left of the base drum is a dog. Uh, military units are famous for having uh, mascots. And the army band at Fort Meade had a mascot. Um, and the, the military bands at Fort Meade had daily duties to perform for reveille and retreat ceremonies. We all have heard bits and pieces of the story about how the Star Spangled Banner was played for the first regularly played um, at Fort Meade uh, and before it was our national anthem. Um, and the like, the bandmasters at Fort Meade and the players are an interesting collection of professional musicians. Many of the, the early guys were trained in, uh, and they were, they were all women, uh, because the last of the active duty military band left uh, in 1943 when the Army took down the flag uh, at Fort Lee. Um, so these men, in the early days, many of them were trained in Italy. Um, many of the bandmasters, particularly the, the senior leaders of these bands, would have had a formal musical training in Italy. Um, and of the many bandmasters, and go to the next slide. Just briefly, a little recollection of the It Started Here story and how um, it was 1892, the 8th Cavalry was the unit of record at Fort Meade. And the wife of the commander um, encouraged him to order the band to play the National the Star Spangled Banner, wasn't the National Anthem, but to play the Star Spangled Banner each day at the uh, retreat ceremony, the, the late afternoon ceremony when we take down the flag. And so it, it started here, it started at Fort Lee, this routine playing of that song uh, as part of a, of a military ceremony. Um, by 1916, the tune had become popular enough and the practice had become popular enough that President Wilson signed an executive order uh, requiring the entire military establishment to use the start Francis Scott Key's music, and it was a borrowed tune, but Francis Scott Key's lyrics uh, put to music um, so that that would be played in, in the Navy and the Marine Corps as well as in the Army. And then by 1931, the U.S. Congress designates the Star Spangled Banner as the national anthem, and so that's where we are with that song today. So next slide. This is the commander of uh, the 8th Cavalry back in the, last, the very last of the 19th century, who uh, listened to his wife, smart man, and um, got the band to play the Star Spangled Banner. Um, he was uh, 18th in his class of 22 at West Point. So, um, you know, he didn't set the world on fire <laughs> in college, but uh, he did go on to go along and distinguish military career. Lived being an old man. He's buried in Cleveland. So next slide, please. So now the bandmasters. This is just one of probably 25 
war officers who were the successive leaders of the military bands at uh, Fort Lee. Uh, they all carried the rank, just the bandmaster was carried the military rank of war officer. So they would have been called Mr. Whatever their last name was, and not Colonel or Lieutenant or Captain or whatever. The warrant officer called Mr. Or, and in today's military, uh, Ms. or Mrs. or Miss, whatever was appropriate. Um, the early ones were trained in Italy. Uh, they often had side gigs in the civilian world, the bandmasters as well as their players. And that, that was a significant footprint, musical note, in the Black Hills region. Um, in the 1930s, there was a bandmaster, and he was here for a long while, uh, who was the director of the Rapid City Municipal Band in the summer camp. And a couple of his soldiers went with him, and they were players in the municipal band. And in those days, I think like today, if you played in the town's summer band, you got a little salary for playing two dollars of performance or something like that. And uh, this particular bandmaster had to take the Rapid City Council to court to collect on back wages that they were slow in paying. And it was it was almost four hundred dollars, and so uh, that would have been some important money worth a fight and hiring a lawyer to go to court over. Uh, there was a, another story that I found of a bandmaster in uh, 1883. Uh, Mr. Schick was the seventh cavalry's bandmaster, and he was away on some kind of duty. He wasn't at the fort. His, his wife was living on the fort, and he posted a $200 reward to find the man who assaulted his wife with a club um, and bring this person to justice. And if you read the news story there, it talks about the bandmaster's wife is assaulted. And then deeper down in the story, and she's assaulted with the club. And then parenthetically in the news story, it says there were no other forms of ravishment. Voiced uh, it off against this one. Well, it turns out that her nephew and the lady had had an argument over the nephew's mistreatment of a horse. And his aunt scolded him and made him more for treating the horse badly. And he came back to settle the score. He beat up his aunt. And, uh, but he wasn't charged. There were no, finally, there were no charges brought for lack of evidence. And no further ravishments either. So, anyway, uh, there was another uh, musician at Fort Meade, a, a bandmaster, and there's a, some confusion. The last name is Beerman. And there, later on in, in military history, there was a Sergeant Beerman, a military musician, who got, to sent, who got sent to prison at Fort Leavenworth for refusing to play the national anthem and another patriotic tune. This was in the 1930s. He wanted to play German music. And yeah, he got court martialed and went to jail uh, over that. And I can't find if War Officer Beerman and his Sergeant Beerman are the same person. They may not be, but it was the imprisonment of this guy was noted in the Sturgis papers. Um, in 1937, uh, go ahead to the next slide, please. Um, 
members of the Ford Cavalry Band uh, went to Mount Rushmore and hiked up the hill, hauled their instruments up in the little trolley car that they used to, to carry dynamite and tools and things up and down the carving. Uh, they worried about the, with the bass drum falling out of the little gondola car. But, um, it must not have. But anyway, they were there to play for the dedication of the Lincoln face in 1937. And Mr. Sidwell, the same guy that took the city council in rapid record for back wages, is still the band director. And he's in the far right. You can just see a white gloved hand uh, in the picture of the other band members. Or down there. About 30 soldiers went up there to perform music, and they had another trumpet player who was the echo bugler who stood on Washington's head as part of the show. Uh, that uh, performance for the dedication of the Lincoln Base on Mount Rushmore. And I know of at least one longtime service resident who was a young soldier in the band at that time, and that's Cecil Barnes. And Mr. Barnes was our Comanche Court neighbor when I was growing up and uh, continued on as a, as a, largely as a keyboard uh, guy, a piano and organ. And the man whistled all the time. The minute the front door or the back door shut behind him and he was outside, you could hear him whistling. And so, oh, Cecil's home. Cecil's outside. And, uh, well, the, he was a clarinet, he was from Sioux Falls originally, a clarinet player. And uh, was recruited or volunteered to serve in the army as a military musician, and uh, was in the Fourth Cavalry Band at Fort Lee, and then stayed here. Lots of Fourth Cavalry soldiers stayed in Sturgis following their military service. He's the only one that I know of who's a musician. There, there may have been others. So, um, and then just to, to wrap up about. Uh, Fort Meade and the like. Um, the last Fort Meade band to play, and all of these military bands from the very beginning, not only did they perform at the fort on a day to day basis, but they were constantly giving concerts, small ensemble performances, you know, things like that. Sergeant Freddie's the director of high school band, for heaven's sakes. Uh, and so they were woven into the community. Maybe as much or more than the regular soldiers were. Um, the soldiers would have had duty at the fort with the horses and the other equipment. But the band, of course, was, is tailor made to go out and be ambassadors um, beyond the gates of the installation. And so all of these bands did that. The last band at Fort Meade was the 88th Glider Regiment. Uh, 1943, just as World War II was really beaten up. Uh, and for about 10 months, the glider regiment is at Fort Meade and they have a band. And they would give concerts. And in one of the news stories about the concert that was going to be presented, they listed the, the credentials of all of the players in the band. So this would have been the U.S. Army of the early 1940s, World War II was going on. Probably most of the members in the band were drafted. Um, the, uh, the war officer who was the leader of the band, and if you look down into these credentials of the band players, they are graduates of Juilliard, 
the Boston Conservatory, Cleveland, other uh, high-end um, performance training institutions. And then while the war comes along, you can serve, and you're not in the infantry, not in the band, um, and it was a good duty for them. Uh, and uh, so I can imagine that the quality of the music that was performed here was pretty high end in, in Sturgis and in the other White Hills communities. So where are we today? Well, I haven't lived in Sturgis for decades uh, and can only kind of listen and catch on to what might be going on in the, in the school system today. So I'll, I'll leave it to you folks and others in the Zoom audience to kind of fill in the blanks, I guess, of what, it's not quite history yet because it's not old enough. And you have to wait for some people to pass away so you can tell stories about And uh, they're, they're not here to defend themselves. Um, and uh, so that's, that's where we are. The next program that I'm starting to work on, and I encourage you, your friends, anyone on, in the Zoom audience to please get in touch with me um, with ideas, sound recordings, pictures, anything that you might have that pertains to performance of music in Sturgis. At, at least two pupils from the Sturgis Public School System have gone on to perform on Broadway. Uh, Jenny Fellner in recent years and, uh, and her sister, by the way, is an equally accomplished musician. Um, and then Paul Bernard um, uh, also was on Broadway in the early 1970s as a fresh college graduate. Um, and elsewhere, other people like Ken Buchanan, who was in a military band for a very long time. Um, and other people have been other Sturgis pupils, students, Sturgis musicians who've gone on to perform in military organizations. And the other thing we can't forget, I absolutely don't want to forget, for the second stanza of this are all of the dance bands, the garage bands, call them what you will, the family bands that have grown up from students, the stories. Uh, there's the McPhersons. Uh, oh gosh, there's the names are out of my head at the moment, but lots of families, moms and dads, the Dennisons, uh, moms and dads and cousins and brothers and whatever would be in these country dance bands to play out in the county in the various uh, community halls and uh, places like that. So that I want to weave into the story uh, as well, along with, as well as of course, what's been going on in the public school system and with the informal, or not informal, but the home training that goes on for musicians these days. Uh, all of the garage band musicians, whether it's Dick Cop or Paul Burgett or Lauren Erickson or Dennis Millick or some of the other rock and rollers that were here in the late 60s and early 70s, they had to largely teach themselves how to play. Um, guitar teachers were few and far between um, in those years. And uh, a lot of those musicians learned their lessons well. And we'll talk about them in the second movement. So 
I've run long on time and I've got to get back to Rapid City. Are there questions or comments that anyone wants to add to all of this? You can put your instruments away now and we'll go to lunch. Oh, what anyway, I uh, mention I want to, first of all, on my way here today, I did talk to Billy Williams. He said, say hi to everybody. So I want to be sure to do that. Billy's at home and she's doing that. But she wanted to be sure to say hi. Mrs. Wishes she could be here. Um, thank you, David, so oh, much for that. It was so interesting. It was fun, too listen to all of that information and, and oh I know that person oh I know that person and lots of stories about different people um and I want to say thank you to the city people that helped us today Lisa and Rod up in the booth and, and um Richard of course has been filming this for the um history of high noon and, and besides being available on zoom for those who don't feel comfortable coming to the auditorium we will be able to bring it up from the archives of the library. So we appreciate that so much. So thank you. Great to come out today.